written down. All of the verses will be up on the screen, though. I went ahead and put them all up on the screen so that we could be sure that we saw them. Uh, Revivalist Leonard Ravenhill said, and it was on our slideshow Sunday for the bulletin, we must learn to pray, uh, and we must pray to learn to pray. And when I read this, I, I took two things away from it. First, we must pray for God to teach us to pray. That's similar to Luke 11 and 1 where the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Second, there is no way to learn to pray except to pray. I mean, we can read books on prayer. We can have lessons on prayer. And all of those things are good and helpful. But in the end, the only way we're going to learn to pray is to actually begin to pray, cry out to the Lord. And that is how we develop ourselves as intercessors, as people of prayer. I truly believe one of the great needs in our day as disciples of Jesus to fully devote themselves or to give themselves to be men and women of prayer. To be men and women of prayer, we must pray, and we must learn to pray, and we must pray to learn to pray. Now, men and women of prayer are needed because spiritual warfare is real and constant. Men and women of prayer are needed because evil abounds in our culture. We are living in a day where righteousness seems odd and sin is normal. Uh, We're living in a day where people cannot blush over their sin any longer. The people around us slumber in their lostness, never, never able to see how desperately they need Jesus. Our children and our grandchildren and, and us and everyone around us is constantly bombarded with evil ideas that if heeded, will push them further and further away from Jesus and His will and His want in their lives. Satan is a destroyer who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He's not passive in this. He actively works to do this. And so we could say he is actively at work to destroy marriages. Marriage is not just out there, but marriages in our church. Marriages of people we know. He is actively working to to steal, kill, and destroy as far as children go. And we see in the world he is having quite a few victories. But it's not just, again, children out there. It would be children here. People we know and care for. He is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy in churches. Uh, We we know from from looking at the American landscape of American evangelicalism that somewhere over 3,000 American churches close every year. Clearly, he's winning. But again, it's not just somewhere out there. Churches in Guymon are closing. Now, so it's, it's here in the midst of, of us as well. He is actively working to steal, kill, and destroy in any way he can in our lives. Right? I mean, make no mistake, he is prowling about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And if he finds a weakness in any of us, well, he'll pounce. And so... Prayer is the most powerful weapon we have against the evil that abounds in our culture. Prayer is the most powerful weapon we have against the enemy who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy. We know from Isaiah, God actively seeks watchmen. He is looking for intercessors to be crying out to Him on behalf of the world. The world desperately needs intercessors to be crying out on their behalf because they're blind, they're deaf, they're dumb to the ways and the will of God. They have no idea what awaits them in eternity. They they may not know it, but they need people to be interceding to God. I read today in my Bible reading was in Deuteronomy and Moses talks about a point where he stood between God and the people. And to me, that is the, the greatest picture of an intercessor. On the one hand, you have a righteous and a holy God who will judge sin. And then there's the people who are the sinners God will judge. And the intercessor is in between. The intercessor is pleading with God to show mercy to the people. And the intercessor is pleading with the people to be reconciled to God. And this is the... I don't know if it's the biggest need in our day, but I think it is certainly a great need. The world needs it. Our churches need it. Our families need it. As disciples of Jesus, you and I, we must be intercessors. 
So that does bring up the question, what is an intercessor? Well, the greatest example of an intercessor, the best picture of a person who is an intercessor is in Colossians 4.12. Epaphras, who is one of your own, he was from Colossae, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, sends his greetings. Now, notice what Paul says Epaphras does. Always striving earnestly for you in his prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So this is the picture of an intercessor. An intercessor always strives earnestly. Right? Intercessory prayer, being an intercessor, is not something we do on a Wednesday night and then we go on about our lives and we never take it up again. It's not something we do just in the moment where something bad has happened in someone's life and we, we intercede for them. As intercessors, we always pray. We are constantly crying out in this way. Now one of the reasons we have to always be praying in this way as intercessors is because intercessory prayer is spiritual warfare. I mean, we are actively praying against the schemes of the enemy. We are praying for blind eyes to be opened, hard hearts to be softened, for dead people to be raised to new life in Christ. There is a spiritual battle raging in all of that. And because it is a spiritual battle, it's not something that will be done quickly. It would be wonderful if we could bow down and we could cry out on behalf of our lost loved ones and the next day they would call on us and say, teach me how to be saved. I want to live for Jesus. It'd be great if we knew of a couple whose marriage was being destroyed by Satan and we prayed really long and hard and the next day it was restored and repaired and going on. But that's just not the way it normally works. As hard as we're fighting to see those people saved and to see those marriages restored, Satan is fighting to keep them blinded, to keep them dead, and to bring death and destruction to the marriage. Intercessors must pray always. It is something that has to be done over time. That We must be persistent in our prayer if we are going to be effective as intercessors. We also, though, we always striving earnestly. Now, the Greek word translated as striving earnestly is where our English word agonize comes from. According to one of my Greek dictionaries, this word carries with it the idea of struggling, fighting, striving, like you're competing for a prize, or fighting with an enemy, or endeavoring to accomplish something difficult. That's a great picture of what we're doing when we're interceding for others. We're struggling. It's a very real spiritual struggle. We are fighting with the enemy for the souls of others. We are laboring on their behalf. And what this reminds us is intercessory prayer is hard work. I mean, it, it just is. To always strive earnestly for others is difficult. It can be discouraging when we don't see the results we want to see right away. The enemy will actively oppose us as we try to do it. He, he knows our prayers can thwart his schemes. He knows the prayers of the saints move the hand of Almighty God. So what is the one thing he doesn't want us to do? Always strive earnestly. He, he doesn't care if we listen to the sermons on prayer. He doesn't care if we read books on prayer. He doesn't care if we do deep Bible studies on prayer. But what He doesn't want us to do is pray. He doesn't want us to always strive earnestly. And it will be labor. It will be like fighting. It will be intense at times. Satan will attack us. Satan will discourage us. But an intercessor puts in the hard work to pray. Always striving earnestly for you, for people. Right? So an intercessor has a specific object of prayer or a focus of what they're praying for. Intercessors don't just pray for people out there necessarily somewhere. 
They pray for someone specific or a specific church or a specific person. Right? There is a specific person that is the or thing or something is the focus of our prayer. Intercessors don't just say, God bless the American churches. Intercessors pray for our church, their church, the other churches in their town. Intercessors pray for you. He was praying not just for people in Colossae, but the people he knew. But he was also praying that they may stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. So when he prayed for the people, the specific people he knew in Colossae, he didn't just say something like, God, do something. He had a very specific request. They would stand mature. They would be fully assured in all the will of God. And many times all of us have been guilty of praying generic shotgun prayers. God be with Bob. God bless Jim. And if we don't really know what's going on, that's not so bad. But it's far better to pray specifically. To pray what we know God needs to do, what needs to be done. God, heal Bob. God, save Jim. God, restore their marriage. Intercessors can't really pray generic shotgun type of prayers. They, they must put in the time to pray specifically. And, and that's really the thing. That's, I think, the greatest reason people don't pray specifically. Specific prayer requires time. Right? God bless everyone that's in this room tonight. Well, that's a three-second prayer. But is that as effective as saying God bless Judy and help her in these particular areas? God work in Red's life and help him with these specific things. Which one is more effective? Which one has the greatest power? Which one takes the most time? I think one of the reasons we pray generic shotgun prayers is because we're not striving earnestly in our prayers. We have to be willing to put in the time to pray specifically as we're always striving earnestly for others. This is what an intercessor does. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to be an intercessor. Whatever else the church of Jesus Christ is meant to be, it is meant to be a house of prayer. And part of being a house of prayer is being an interceding church. I feel strongly intercession is to be a major priority for our church. That's one reason on Sunday mornings we give specific things to pray for. We take requests. All of these things are ways for us to intercede for others, for other churches, for ourselves, for one another. We must be intercessors. So we'll take a minute or two right now, not long. And and as we pray, just commit yourself before God to be an intercessor. Someone who commits to always strive earnestly and specifically for others in prayer. Let's just take a few minutes and pray. Holy Father, we come today. We love you. We we are amazed at the, the privilege we have of prayer. To know that we get to, in some ways, be involved in what you're doing in the world through our prayers. Be involved in what you want to do in the world through our prayers. Help us, Lord, to be intercessors. To commit ourselves to doing this. Forgive me. Lord, for the times I've rushed my prayer time because I wanted to get on to do other things. Forgive me for the times I've prayed the generic shotgun prayers because I didn't want to take the time to to pray specifically. Father, I commit myself to being an intercessor. 
with you being my helper, your grace guiding and strengthening me, your spirit empowering me to pray, I will always strive earnestly for others in prayer. Guide us to make this commitment. Guide us to see it through. And let us look with all at what you do as we intercede for others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So now the question is, how do we intercede? What are some specific ways to intercede? Uh, since we're to pray as specifically as possible, I want to give us some specific ways to pray. Now, intercessory prayer doesn't have to be for the lost, prodigal, or those who are beginning to stray. But the focus tonight really is, my heart is burdened in that general area. I mean, we can intercede for missionaries. Um, if on Wednesdays, I typically share on Facebook the, uh, the hotline prayer request from our International Missions Board. And it's basically all our Free Will Baptist missionaries that need prayer. They send in requests and things they want us to pray for. And that's interceding. That is praying. That is always laboring fervently specifically for them in prayer. Right? So we pray for missionaries. We can pray for one another. We can pray for the sick. All of those. We can. But tonight our focus is on those who are lost, those who are prodigals, and on those who are straying. So the way to pray, pray God would shine gospel light into darkened minds. Right? 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6 says if our gospel is hid, or if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, I want to stop there. Because that's an important concept for us to grasp. Veiled means people don't see the need for Jesus. They don't see the need for the gospel. Now that, that's important. right? It's not that they don't say, yeah, Jesus. But they don't see the need for the death of Jesus. Gospel is, is very specific. It is not just Jesus in general. It is a specific part of His life. His, his death for sin and His resurrection. Demonstrating He is the Son of God. So if the gospel is veiled in someone's life, if, if you know a person, if I know a person, and they say, I don't, I don't need the death and the resurrection of Jesus in my life. I don't need the gospel. I don't want the gospel. I, I just don't. That's fine for you, but I don't need that. It says something very specific about them. They're perishing. Now, when... The New Testament particularly talks about people perishing. It's not talking about physically dying. We're all going to die. It's appointed unto man once to die. We're all going to die. It's not talking about physically dying. It's talking about spiritually dying. It's talking about being condemned. It is saying if the gospel is veiled to somebody, if they don't see their need for the death and the resurrection of Jesus for their salvation, it is because they are lost. It is because they are condemned. It is because hell is their eternal home at this moment. And this is something we must grasp at the core of our being to be intercessors. Before we will truly Always strive earnestly for people in prayer, for them to be saved. We must accept they are lost. Not lost because they're bad people. Not lost because they're serial killers. Not lost because they do horrific things. Lost because the gospel is veiled and they do not receive it in their lives. doesn't matter how good they are. doesn't matter how kind they are. doesn't matter how generous they are. Doesn't matter what good people they are, what good parents they are, what good spouses they are. If they don't see a need for the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in their life, they are perishing. And we must accept that. We must know that so we can pray. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. See, they un they're unbelievers. They don't believe. So they will not see the light of the glory, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So this is what we're praying. We're praying that God would shine light to their darkened minds. Now, what Paul is saying is the God of this world has blinded their minds. What has he used to blind them? Well, he has used whatever works. He doesn't use one thing for all people. 
Some people he blinds them through deep wickedness and immorality, to be sure. But some people he blinds through being good moral people. I am a great moral person. Why do I need this gospel? Some people he blinds through false doctrine. Some people he blinds through just a a stumbling block someone has placed in their lives. You, You name it. The God of this world will use it to blind those minds. And what they need, what those people whose minds are blinded, who have the gospel veiled need, is they need the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to shine in their minds. And dispel that darkness so they can see Jesus. So how, do, how does that happen? If we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves your bondservants on account of Jesus. Jesus is the answer. The gospel is the answer. They don't see their need for it. They reject the gospel. They don't believe the gospel. But the gospel is still the answer. And so we pray for God to shine just as God shined light in darkness in the creation. God shines light in our hearts and in our minds to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of us were like that at one point. All of us had the gospel veiled. All of us lived not knowing and needing the, the knowing we needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. What happened? Well, somebody preached the gospel, and as they did, God opened our minds. He shined the light and dispelled the darkness. And for the first time, we realized that was for us. We needed not just religion. We needed not just morality. We needed not just God. But we needed the death and the resurrection of Jesus for our salvation. Pray. The Holy Spirit would would use God's word like a light to dispel darkness in the minds of the lost. Pray God the Holy Spirit would use God's word like a light to dispel darkness in the minds of the prodigals that are straying, those who are drifting, so they would see the glory of Jesus. They would recognize their desperate need for Jesus. And they would turn to Jesus. This is a specific way to always strive earnestly in prayer for others. Pray for Holy Spirit conviction. Before anyone will turn from their sin and turn to Jesus, they must be convinced of their need for Jesus so they can call on Jesus. And only the Holy Spirit can do this. And He, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness and judgment. Regarding sin because they do not believe in Me. Regarding righteousness because I'm going to the Father and you see Me no longer. And regarding judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, the idea of convict um, is better expressed possibly as convince. Uh, The Holy Spirit convinces people of something. It's not just that He makes us feel a certain way. It's that He makes us believe, understand certain things. Again, think about when you were lost. What happened? You were you became convinced you were a sinner. Right? I mean, you understood I I have sinned against a holy and a righteous God. And, And because I've sinned, I myself, I am unrighteous and there is a judgment to come that I will face. Now, for me, prior to that, those things did not really resonate with me. I knew I mean, I was raised in free will Baptist churches. I heard it all of my life. But there was a moment I went beyond understanding people's sin to understand I was a sinner. I went beyond understanding people are unrighteous to understanding I was unrighteous. I went beyond understanding there was a judgment to come to understand I would face that judgment and perish in that judgment. This is how we must pray. We must pray for the Holy Spirit to convince people. They are sinners. To convince people they are unrighteous in the presence of an almighty, holy God. And to convince people the judgment of God is real and they will face it and they will perish in the midst of that. 
We pray the Holy Spirit as he does this would cut people to the heart, as it says in Acts 2.37. They would be cut to the heart and cry out, what must I do to be saved? Pray the Holy Spirit would use God's word like a sword to cut the lost, to cut the prodigals. And to cut those who are drifting from the faith to the heart and bring deep conviction. And with this pray, the Holy Spirit would make them miserable as he did David. And I kept silent about my sin. My body wasted away through, the, through my groaning all the day. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality failed as the dry heat of summer. I mentioned this Sunday, but Leonard Ravenhill said, David had one of the most blessed experiences in the world. And that blessedness was he was miserable about his sin. Listen, if you have a loved one that's lost, it's a prodigal or that's straying, do not pray for peace in their lives. Do not pray for prosperity in their lives. You pray God would make them miserable about their sin. You pray God would convince them of their sin and give them nightmares about the hell they will go to. You pray their sin will be something they begin to despise. That they can take no pleasure and no joy in it. Do not pray for God to make your prodigal or your lost loved one comfortable in their sin. So that they can comfortably go to hell when they die. You pray God would make them miserable in their sin so they will turn to Him and be saved. And they will go to heaven when they die. Pray mental strongholds will be broken down. Every lost person, every prodigal, and everyone who's drifting from the faith has some sort of thought process they've built up in their minds that keeps them from Jesus. These are strongholds they have erected, and they must be broken down before they can turn to Jesus. We have a weapon. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of of fortresses. We are destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Arguments and arrogance exalting itself against the knowledge of God can take such root in a person's mind they become fortresses, protecting their minds against the knowledge of God. Any number of issues can become fortresses, exalting themselves against the knowledge of God. Pride is a huge one, especially in our culture. We are very much a self-made people. We admire self-made people. We don't need nobody to do nothing for us. Then I don't need God to fix my life. I can square myself away. I can save myself. That's pride. It's a stronghold. It could be a pride that says, I'm just too smart to believe the Bible. My mind is too analytical. To just take something by faith that Jesus died and, and rose again. That's a, that's a stronghold in their mind. It exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It is something they resort to that protects them from having to think about who God is and what God has done. It could be a false spirituality. Our, our culture today is spiritual but not religious. That's very common. They buy into Eastern mysticism. They buy into karma. They buy into, you name it, some sort of astronomy or astrology. All of these things. They, they buy into these false spiritualities that, that give them this sense of, well, I've, I've got wholeness in my life. And so I, I don't need Jesus. It's a stronghold. It's exalting itself against the knowledge of God's sin. Sin can absolutely... Some people, Jesus said, some people love their sins so much they will not come into the light and be saved. They don't want to give up their sin. They don't want to turn from their sin. They want to live in their sin. And so they, they, they hide behind that and it becomes a fortress. A secular worldview that says there is no God. There is no Creator. There is no Savior. That the reality is there's not possible for someone to, to come as Jesus supposedly came to, to die for the sins of the world and rise from the dead. There's nothing supernatural. This world is it. When you die, you're buried, you become dust. The end. It's a fortress. Exalts itself against the knowledge of God. False doctrine. Gosh, false doctrine, it abounds. 
Whether it would be stuff like Islam. Whether it would be stuff like Buddhism. Whether it would be stuff that's more uh, looks and acts like us, like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. It is a false doctrine that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and keeps people from believing in Jesus and being saved. Shame. People can just think, I've done too much. My life has been too bad. There's no way a true holy God would ever forgive me. Hardships. I mean, some people have truly hard lives, don't they? I mean, they've gone through bad things. And hardships can become a strong, holy fortress against God in two ways. One way is what we might think of as the most common way. How can there be a good and a loving God who would allow these terrible things to happen into my life? And if there is a God and He's allowed these things, I don't want anything to do with Him. That's a fortress. They've built up in their minds. It exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Another way is people who have gone through hardships and they say, I've already gone through hell, so I deserve to go to heaven. I had, a, I had a girl tell me that. She did these things. She had these things happen. She had earned her way to heaven via the things she had suffered and survived in her life. I think many people that go through hard lives believe their lives have been hard. God owes them heaven. And that becomes a, a fortress, a stronghold, exalting itself against God. Pleasure, comfort, apathy. Uh, apathy has probably always been a thing. I read an article a couple of weeks ago. 48% of what is it, millennials and Gen Zers, 48% don't know if God is real and don't care. I mean... That's a that's a startling statistic. That they don't know is one thing. Lots of people may not know. They, they don't even care. The thought of God is not compelling enough for them, for them to even investigate and see. They just don't care. It's a stronghold. Keeps them from God. Wealth, sexuality. Sexuality, of course, it's this Pride Month, huge thing in our culture right now. Keeps people from God. God has said, this is what sexuality is. The world says it's something entirely different. And so, boom, becomes a stronghold keeping people from God. Now, while these strongholds exist, there are spiritual weapons that break them down. And again, it's the Word. My Word is like a fire and a hammer. A fire that burns away junk and draws a hammer that smashes and breaks. So we pray the Holy Spirit would use God's Word like a fire to burn down things in their minds. That the Holy Spirit would use God's Word like a hammer to smash the strongholds the lost have erected. And, and that's the thing, right? They have raised themselves to protect them in so many ways against the knowledge of God. So that stronghold, it's not going to come down on its own. Again, this is a huge thing for us to grasp. Our, our loved ones that are prodigals, that are lost, that are straying, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, they're not coming back. They're not going to turn to Jesus. The stronghold that they have built up in their mind is not something they're going to walk out of on their own. That stronghold they have built to protect themselves against the knowledge of God, against the reality of salvation and the reality of hell. They have built that up and it protects them. It keeps them comfortable. It keeps them safe from the knowledge of God. And the only way that stronghold will be come down is if the Holy Spirit takes God's Word, uses it like a hammer, and smashes it. And that's how we have to pray. The Holy Spirit to smash the stronghold that they have erected in their minds. So that their thoughts can be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Pray for Satan's plans to fail. It's easy in our Western world for us to forget about the active role Satan plays in keeping lost people lost, pushing prodigals away and keeping them away, preventing the drifting from ever returning. Again, in our Western world, we're, we're too enlightened to believe in an evil spiritual being who has evil spiritual minions who move about the earth deceiving and destroying. Yet the Bible says that's exactly what there is. 
He is active. Not passive. He is not passive. He is very active. Keeping people from Jesus. The Bible tells us in several ways. Paul says, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to find out about your faith for fear of the tempter. I lost my train of thought. So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. We're not ignorant of his schemes. This is one of the key verses, this in Ephesians 6.10, which also talks about the, the schemes of the wiles of the enemy. So we're warned against letting the enemy take advantage of us by his schemes, strategies. And it's plural, not strategy, but strategies of the mind. But this not only refers to the many strategies Satan himself employs to deceive and destroy, but it's the many strategies he he brings into our minds. Right? Because it really, in so many ways, it starts in the mind. What we believe up here will determine how we live our lives. Satan uses strategies and these schemes to deceive and destroy. He, he uses them against believers and unbelievers a lot. That, that's how prodigals exist. That's how people begin to stray. Satan begins to deceive them. He begins to, to mess with their minds. He begins to tell them lies that they then begin to embrace and believe. And it pushes them away. And, and it, what makes it so dangerous is there's no way to, to like fully inoculate ourselves against it. Because what's he going to use? He's going to use what's effective. And the lie that might work on me, well, it might not work on you. The lie that might work on you might not work on another person. So he is been around since our first parents were in the garden, perfecting his strategies and his schemes. And if we're ignorant of them, he will take advantage of us. He will lead us astray. He will steal our children and destroy them. He will take the lost we love and keep them lost and deceived and destroyed. His goal, his goal is always to keep unbelievers blinded to the truth of the gospel, to keep prodigals from returning to their heavenly father to deceive drifters into believing a lie instead of the truth, to lead us as devoted disciples of Jesus to be apathetic about it all. Paul also goes on another place, for this reason I could no longer endure it. I sent to find out about your faith for fear the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be for nothing. Now this is a powerful thing. Paul has labored among the Thessalonians, made them disciples of Jesus. But his concern is that the enemy had tempted them and his labor would be for nothing. Now, let me ask you, what would be the only thing that would make his labor among the Thessalonians be for nothing? That is, if he labored among them for them to become disciples of Jesus, only for them to be tempted and turn from Jesus, right? I mean, if they sinned and then continued on with Christ, his labor is not for nothing. He still has them. But if he's labored among them and they're not disciples, they've been tempted and turned away, then there's the problem. So Satan tempts in order to turn away. I mean, the temptations he lays before us, before the lost, before the prodigals, before the drifting. It's it's not in any way anything other than to deceive and destroy and keep them from Jesus. Keep us from Jesus. To push us away. This is everything he does is for that purpose. And there are probably like at least three lies he tells in the midst of his temptation. One is, this is no big deal. This is no big deal. Compared to what others is doing, this is no big deal. This isn't something that you should worry about. Go ahead. Have your fun. Do your thing. It's not a big deal. The world is different now. You can't expect people to live by that old, outdated morality. This is not a big deal. Don't worry about that. Or he says, no one will know. 
It's a secret. No one will ever find out. No one will ever know. There will not be any consequences. Nothing bad will ever happen to you when you do this. The third would be you don't have a choice. You were born this way. You, you don't have any other choice than to give in to this sin. This is who you are at the core of your being. There's no way to overcome it. You could never be different. You must live this way. Be this way. And he lays these sinful temptations out. And he does all he can to get people to give in to them. He also works through condemnation. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. And for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down, the one who accuses them before God day and night. Satan is an accuser. And what he does is, when he tells us it's no big deal, and then we give in to it, then he says, how could you have done that? Jesus died for you and you did that? You're horrible. You're, you're not really a Christian. You couldn't actually live for Jesus. You're a miserable wretch. Or, or it reminds you of your past. I don't know about you. I have a past. I have things I did when I was young. I don't, I'm not proud of. I don't want people to know. I don't like to think on. And when Satan, at times I, I wake up in the night and, or I'll have a, a dream and I'll wake up and, and there'll just be these thoughts of you're condemned. Look at what you did. There's no way you're actually saved. Who are you to try to tell people about Jesus? You did all of this. Sort of condemnation he weighs on us. Gosh, sometimes he can even do it when we haven't done anything. You ever have days where you just wake up and feel condemned before God and worthless? You're thinking, man, Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. But wait, you think, I don't, I don't know of any sin, but I feel condemned. Now, if there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus, where does that feeling come from? It's not God. It's the enemy. If He can make us feel condemned, He can push us away from God. Because a lot of times, what He does with condemnation is He adds to it. He not only accuses us, but He accuses others to us. Let's say I... I feel deeply condemned. He's accused me and I've bought into it. I'm, I'm condemned. I'm so worthless. And then Evelyn comes to church and, and she doesn't speak to me the way she normally does. And then I hear, who does she think she is? She knows what I've done. She, she despises me too. Who does she think she is? She's not perfect. She's not all that. Right? You ever have stuff like that play in your mind that brings other people to your mind and makes you think how worthless and miserable wretches they are? Who does that come from? That's not God. God is not accusing other people to you in your mind. Or me. It's the accuser. And now, Evelyn hates me. I probably better just leave church. I mean, I can't come back because Evelyn told Jackie, and, and they probably told Red and Lavina. And now that you mention it, Judy changed sides of the church, and that's not normal. People don't just change sides in Baptist churches, right? And so you begin to work up all of these things. Well, now, all of y'all are condemning me along with the enemy in my mind. So why would I come to church when everybody's looking down on me? Everybody's just thinking bad about me. Where does that come from? It's not God. It's the accuser of the brethren. So we, we pray specifically against the plans of Satan. Now, the, the goal is always the same, regardless of which one he uses. Deceive, destroy. That's the end goal. Our job is to pray against it as specifically as we can. Many times we know our lost loved one, our prodigal, our person that's straying, we may have an idea of what's at work in their lives, what's pushing them away. And so we take the time and we pray specifically against it. And then another way to intercede is to pray for laborers. The greatest need, seeing the lost saved and the prodigals restored and the drifters return, is for other people to go to them and talk to them about Jesus. 
heard a sermon at, at our state meeting by our international missions director. And he said, if I could change God's Word, I would change it this way. I would say, not that the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few. I would say the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are lazy. Because there's plenty of people who profess faith in Jesus. But we pray for laborers to go out. Now specifically in this case, we pray for people to go to our, our lost loved ones. To go to our prodigals. To those that we are praying to be straight. Now, sometimes we have to go and have those conversations. But how many of you know sometimes you're not the one, I'm not the one to have that conversation with them? I've got family members that I've tried to talk to about their relationship and they told me, do not ever bring this up again. They won't listen to me. But I pray for somebody to go to them. Somebody they, they will listen to. And that's how we do. I mean, they may not listen to you or me, but there's somebody that can connect with them. There's somebody that can get through those thick skulls and get the gospel into their minds and let it shine and dispel the darkness. And we pray laborers would go to them. Not just general laborers to the harvest. We pray for that too, but we pray send somebody to them. And now I'm going to end the last part of why intercession matters. We normally try to end the prayer services on an exciting, hey, this is great, look how good God is, or all of this, but, but I'm not going to tonight. I, I want to leave us with a heavy thought about why intercession is so important. The reality is our prayers may be the only thing standing between our lost loved one, our prodigal, or our drifter in the severe judgment of God. This is one of my very favorite passages about intercession. If I don't know of a passage that displays the importance of intercession more than this one. This is God. I searched for a man among them who would build up a wall and stand in the gap before me in the land so that I would not have to destroy it. So Israel is straying. They're prodigals. They're going away. And God is looking for a reason not to pour His judgment out upon them. So He's looking for someone that would be an intercessor that would be standing in the gap, interceding for them, but He finds no one. So what did He do? He poured out His indignation upon them. He consumed them with the fire of His wrath. He have brought their own way upon their own heads. He gave them what their sins deserved. How important are our prayers of intercession for the lost, the prodigals, and the straying? Apparently they could be the only thing standing between them and the sure judgment of God. Because the judgment's coming, right? I mean, God can call anyone into judgment at any time because He's God. So why hasn't He? It could be because we're praying for God to be merciful, to spare them, give them more time to repent. But when I went off in the army, I, uh, I did not in any way live for Jesus. I went to church. Some, uh, because I called my parents on Sundays and the first thing they asked was, did I go to church? And if I had said no, I would get a lecture. Uh, and when you're paying the price to call from Germany, you don't want to spend your money on a lecture. So I would, I would go to church often on Sunday mornings, drunk, hungover, because of the things I'd done on Saturday nights. So many times, so, so close to bad things happening, left a place just moments before a drive-by shooting. Hand grenade went off just feet from me, and I, and I was not hurt. Walked through a place minutes ahead of friends who were later who were jumped and beat down horribly. Car wreck. I mean, you, you name it, and there were just terrible things that happened all around me, and, and God spared me. Why? I believe it's because I had a church that was praying for me. Mom and Dad never stopped. My grannies prayed for me. My church family prayed for me. I, I am fully convinced the only reason I survived those years and did not face the sure judgment of God, which I so richly deserve, was because of people who interceded for me. 
So if you're interceding for someone, you're praying for God to be merciful, I know. I know you're tired. I know it's discouraging. I know the work is hard. Don't quit. Don't quit because you may be the only person standing between God and them. Keep pleading with God to spare them. Keep pleading for them to re-reconcile to God. Don't give up. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Father, we love you today. Praise you for your grace and your goodness, kindness and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for mom and a dad who prayed for me. Thankful, Lord, for a church who prayed for me. Thank you for sparing me all those years, all those things I did. Father, guide us. I know I know many in here today are weary from laboring, always striving earnestly for their lost loved one, their prodigal, the one that's straying. And it's so tempting at times to just give up and pray about other things because it's so hard. Help us, Lord, not to grow weary in well-doing. Trust your word that we will receive a harvest if we faint not. Renew our zeal to be intercessors. Lay people upon our hearts that we would always strive earnestly for them to stand complete in all the will of God. Let us pray specifically for them. Let us pray boldly for them. And oh God, let us see. Let us see our prodigals come home. Let us see our straying come back to the right path. Let us see the lost saved God, sanctified and live for you. We'll be careful to give you the glory for you alone deserve it. We ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. We're dismissed.